You're listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and how to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. And now, enjoy Factual America with our host, Matthew Sherwood. Welcome to Factual America, a podcast that explores the themes that make America unique through the lens of documentary filmmaking. Uh, We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London-based production company that makes documentaries focused on the U.S. from a European perspective. Now, here at Alamo Pictures and Factual America, we're all about searching for truth in a post-truth society, which is easier said than done. Uh, But... uh, So that brings us to our topic for today, which is, uh, I hate to say it pains me as an American to talk about uh, gun violence uh, and all the issues around it in the United States. Um, I don't know what it is. We seem, uh, it's it's obviously a problem. It's an issue that does, in a lot of people's minds uh, across the world, define the U.S. in many ways. Uh, It is a problem uh, that rears its ugly head, not just periodically, as a scan of the stats would show you. I think it's, uh, you know, it's increasingly a problem even. And yet, as a collective culture, nation, we seem uniquely incapable of doing anything about it. So that brings me to our guest today, uh, Professor Peter Squires. Um, uh, Peter is a sociologist by background and professor of criminology and public policy at the University of Brighton. Uh, he's written a raft of publications uh, that, among many things, put gun crime in a global co- context. Uh, he's self-described himself as a relatively obscure British academic, but he's anything but, I would say, as someone who lives here in the UK. He's sought after by international media, participates in debates. You might have seen him in HuffPost. Uh, he's gone uh, mano a mano with Wayne LaPierre from the uh, NRA, the chief exec and executive vice president. We may talk a little bit about that later. And he puts his money where his mouth is, so he works with various police organizations in the UK, including uh, the London Met. Um, and has served as a borough councillor. So uh, without further ado, uh, Peter, welcome to Factual America. Uh, good to meet you. Thank yeah, you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, the, uh, as, as, as you know how we roll here at Factual America, we ask all our guests, even those who are not necessarily documentarians or filmmakers, to pick or select a film that will at the very least serve as a backdrop for the uh, conversation we're going to have. Now, you've picked uh, three and a half minutes, ten bullets. First of all, I want to thank you for picking that. I hadn't had a chance to see that until this last week, and it's a, it's an, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Uh, you can find it on Vimeo. Uh, it came out in 2015, won a special jury award at Sundance. What we like to see here at uh, Factual America and uh, Alamo Pictures is that it's uh, directed by Mark Silver, who's a British cinematographer and director who brings a uniquely British and European perspective to the story. Uh, you may also know him for directing Who is Diani Cristal uh, in 2013, which starred uh, Gael Garcia Bernal. So, uh, Peter, why? maybe you can tell us a little bit why you ch- chose this film. 
or and how you well, why you use it as a as part of your uh, teaching. I <clears throat> I've I've often used films, documentary films, with mm-hmm. with classes of students. Um, and what I particularly liked about this film, I mean, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a and and just as the title says, in three and a half minutes, so many people's lives changed yeah, around the, the the firing of ten bullets into a into a car. Um, but I I, I like the way the 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 story around the incident builds, and it's useful in class because I I take the students i show them the first 50 odd minutes of the film uh, where we get all the evidence we get all the perspective we see the trauma of the victims and then the jury goes out Mm. and i i like to ask students um you know what what verdict do you think you would reach what were the most compelling pieces of evidence what what uh, verdict would you reach and then i i try to trick them a little by saying well what do you think an american jury would yeah. decide oh. and would it be the same as an english jury yeah. and and sometimes that throws them off and it opens up some of those uh incorrect assumptions we might make about mm. transatlantic justice. Yes, yes. No, I think that's a very good point. And I think the audience itself, even if you're not in uh, Professor Squire's class, you're, you're asked to sort of do the same thing. You're, you're watching the film and you wait, you're in your mind, you're weighing up the evidence. Um, and I, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't take a particular slant from the very beginning. He just presents it so that you can come to your uh, own conclusions. Um, maybe for those who haven't seen it, could you uh, give us a sort of a brief synopsis of? Yeah, the sure. Film? It's <clears throat> it all happens on a, a gas station forecourt. Uh, a, a white guy and his wife pull up to to go to the store that's mm. at the gas station, uh, and the guy is, I think, filling his car. Another vehicle pulls up adjacent to his, with three young black men in it. Mm. Uh, they're playing what's described as very loud rap music. The the white guy seems to take offense at this. You can see this on on the the the, the gas station CCTV system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He takes offense at this noise uh, and he asks the yeah, young men to turn the music down. Yeah, I, I, you can't tell everything that's being said, but yeah. I, I'm sure they're abusive back to him and refuse to do so. Uh, at which point, he goes to the glove box of his car, pulls out a gun, and fires ten shots into the, yeah. the into the other car. Yeah. in the process, killing one person, wounding another. Yeah, yeah, that'd be uh, so. He so he ends up killing uh, Jordan Davis. Uh, who's the uh, one of the young black youths uh, in that car? Uh, I mean, is this uh, I, and the whole the whole trial is all hinges on this law in Florida that's uh, the stand your ground law, and maybe you can say a little bit about that. Well, I think there's a degree of ambiguity about yeah. that because I don't think the stand your ground law comes up in a in a very specific way in the trial, yeah. and it certainly isn't really the basis of his of his defence. Although, in the in yeah. a, a much vaguer notion of the fact that he felt intimidated by these three African American guys, he claims to the police that he saw. What he thought was a shotgun barrel in the in the vehicle window, he he claims that the fact that they were listening to gangster rap music was yeah. the fact that they were gangsters, and mm. any you know he, his his approach to them was about to be met by force from them, and he claims he was scared and he acted rather quickly. Uh, rather intemperately, obviously, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and just empties his gun into their vehicle. Mm. So I, I I think 
the Stand Your Ground law is there almost as a set of background assumptions, although yeah. I don't think the case itself hangs directly on it. I think, actually, that's very interesting. I think that's a very good point. It is really, the what he keeps stressing is that he felt he, he was defending himself. He felt scared. He thought it was obvious these guys were about to... To shoot him and his fiance, as, as he was claiming, um, oh, and, and that is, and that is, in a sense, part of the the defence that someone claiming yeah. the right to stand my ground yes. and defend myself yeah. would do. But he, he doesn't quite make that explicit, which I think is interesting. The way in which yeah. a law. Uh, and we've talked earlier about yeah. whether it was badly or clearly drafted. Yes. The law exists, but a whole set of a half half understood assumptions yeah. circulate around it, which influence people's actions. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I th the, just to say a little bit more about the film too is like any great documentary, it deals with so many different uh, issues, and there's issues obviously of race here. There's issues of even uh, faith and religion and, and the mass media and, and these things. So do highly recommend. I mean, I guess uh, I was looking at this, that depending on your definition, this could count as a, a mass shooting. Um, I've, it's always dangerous here when we start getting into statistics on this subject. And as an American, I have unique sensibilities on this. But I know the Gun Violence Archive, uh, which is a nonprofit, defines a mass shooting as four more people. So I guess if it's only three in the car, maybe it doesn't count in this case. But four more people, excluding the perpetrator, are shot in one location roughly at the same time. Now, I know for those of you who might getting a bit bristly out there, the Washington Post and Congressional Research Service uh, define it a little more narrowly. You have to actually be killed in order to count as a victim. But that seems like a pretty good definition to me, If uh, I don't know, as a layman. Uh, and what I was surprised to see was that uh, up through latest data go through 24th of September of this year, and we've had 334 mass shootings in the United States. Okay, some of those are murder-suicides, but there you go. That's one point, uh, that's still more than one per day. And we're talking about 377 dead, so that's obviously more than one per day and uh, over 1,300 injured. Uh, and notably, in August alone, we had Midlow, Midland, Odessa, and El Paso in Texas, and we had Dayton, Ohio. Um, I had another spin on that, actually. Do you? I, I, I recently went to uh, Tucson for a gun violence conference, and yeah. while there, I went to Tombstone, where you can, yeah. three three times a day, you can watch the gunfight at the OK Corral performed by actors in front of you. Um, and what always intrigued me, that, 39 movies have been made that feature the, the gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, but although it's America's most iconic gunfight, yeah. it probably wouldn't count as a mass shooting because only three people died. <laughs> it's kind of exactly. irony there. Exactly. I mean, I, I, this, is a, this is a question we often ask our guests, and I'll, I'll bring it up here since you, you bring up Tombstone. Is I mean, growing up, what were your, you know, even before you became, got into this field, what were your impressions of America? Did you, you know... Uh, I've, I've, yeah, I've always been fascinated by America. My, my father was an avid uh, John Wayne cowboy yeah. film yeah. Uh, watcher, and and I was thoroughly indoctrinated in that and all the series that went with it, um, and 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 still am in a way, and, and I'm fascinated by that, uh, mm. and and particularly the kind of the notion of the Wild West, and 
through my childhood, probably got a kind of completely inflated sense of how that relatively short period in in history mm. has left down a marker and, and, and has had a profound ideological impact upon how people think about themselves and their safety. And I think this is something we'll get to just a little bit later, but I think uh, from what I've read of your works, but feel free to correct me uh, later, I, I think you've, you know, it's it's not just one solution. It's a, It's a bit of a nuanced view of what why the U.S. has this issue and or has the inability to, to maybe or hasn't up till now uh, been able to tackle it. But before we do that, I thought it would be good to just uh, one last thing from the film is to uh, maybe see a, a little clip here. Um, and I think there's one in particular you said is uh, quite good in terms of uh, uh, sort of setting up the whole uh, the whole piece. Uh, do you yeah, it's it's simply this is after the event. the The shooter has has been, I think, arrested. He's certainly in the in the police station in, in an interview room, uh, facing two two cops who are asking him about what happened and the order of events. Um, and he's very pally, very chatty with them. Um, and and I find it fascinating that despite what he's just done killed someone, fired nine more shots into a, a vehicle a, a yard or two away, he still doesn't seem to get that mm. he's done anything wrong. Yeah. Um, and now that might be a, a degree of bravado, it might be sort of shock and trauma afterwards, but he, he, he feels he's in the right, and I, I don't think he sees a murder charge coming. Yeah, and I think he maintains it almost throughout the whole, the whole piece. So uh, let's, let's watch that now. Mr. Guy told you what he believes the evidence is gonna show. What Mr. Guy didn't tell you is that Jordan Davis threatened Michael Dunn with a shotgun barrel sticking out of the window or a lead pipe. Whatever it was, it's a deadly weapon. We're not here to change the laws. We're not here to say anybody deserved to lose their life. But under the law, it's justified. And Michael Dunn had every right under the law to not be a victim. To be judged by 12 rather than carried by six. That's law. And that's justified in the great state of Florida. What's going on with your life that... Oh, no, my life is great. Life is that's great. what I'm, I'm going to place on the beach. I got a great job. I got a great girl. Mm -hmm. We just got a little puppy. I mean, the way I see this, this was, um, I was scared for my life mm -hmm. and I um, fought back. Mm -hmm. And you guys are seeing this as murder. Do I, do I need to get a lawyer? I mean, it sounds like I'm in deep shit. All right. That yeah, I think that's a that's a, a very good piece and uh, really does help set up the uh, the the whole story there. Uh, I think let's then move into some of the so these really meaty issues that uh, we we're hoping to discuss today. Um, I mean, first of all, why why is why are mass shootings, gun violence, why is it so prevalent in the U.S.? Um, I mean, I think there's a few things we could even discuss there. I mean. Uh, for our listeners, some are U.S.-based, some are European-based. You could contrast the whole gun-buying experience in the U.S. versus, say, the U.K. or, or Europe. Uh, Europeans think you can just uh, pretty much uh, people sell guns on the street left and right in, in America. You might argue it's not too far off from that. Uh, there are some Americans who would probably think that not even the French army is allowed to have guns, you know. And, uh, and I know, having lived here, it's a very, it's a very different story. So maybe... 
if you could maybe lead us through that about, uh, and we know that there are other countries where there's high levels of gun ownership, but they don't have this problem. So maybe you could uh, say a little something, you know, what your, yeah, what sure. your research has shown you. I mean, the, my, my most recent research, my, my magnum opus, if you mm. like, the, the gun violence in global context yeah. um, book, I, I tried to distinguish between what you might call civilized and uncivilized and right. decivilizing yeah. gun uh, regimes. Mm. Um, so places like Switzerland or Norway, that yeah, there are lots of guns. These, these are European, highly civilized, highly regulated, licensed, and they have re- relatively low international, internationally speaking, cr- low crime rates. Um, but they don't have the kind of culture and history. So, so switch back to the states um this is a this is a former frontier society where guns had a purpose where guns were celebrated where guns were used increasingly now i i i see the language of genocide being used to describe white advancement across america mm. i mean it was called a civilizing process at the time and and that kind of ensconced firearms with a sort of reverence the mm. You know, America set itself free by the power of the gun, kicked out the British, mm. uh, civilized the West, yeah. uh, ended slavery, all by the power. So the gun is vindicated as a force for for, mm. for progress, in a sense. But that's tradition, that's history. The the gun is celebrated in the Second Amendment, mm. although I think that over time the meaning of that has been indeed shifted quite considerably. Yeah. Um, but. By the time we get to the 1970s, the 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 hunting and the shooting and the Wild West kind of mm. sporting heritage that is mm. part of the firearm culture is shifting to a self-defense yeah. rhetoric, um, and a self-defense rhetoric founded upon crime, later terrorism. But I think both of those notions are a bit of a, you know, what they sometimes call dog whistle politics right, which right. are really about race and which are really about yeah. the inner city so i think a lot of people are arming themselves um as a as a sort of last resort it, it you know you could see it in the little house on the prairie but i think that mm. mindset is still part of many people's resort to personal protection firearms today yeah. i mean i think that's an interesting point and not that this is just about mass shootings but you can use mass shootings as again another sort of statistic i mean they were very very rare like they are in other countries up until sort of the 70s, 80s, and they've really taken, you know, not taken off, but, you know, certainly their frequency is much more uh, prevalent in the sort of 90s, and I saw that even, and also in terms of their uh, the gravity, in terms of the number of fatalities, they, uh, I think the top nine worst or ten worst uh, mass shootings um more than I think all but two or since since 2000 you know yeah I, I, you can't yes you can't yeah. take the the gun out of the picture and I think one there's an upstep in 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 gravity and seriousness when we're starting to talk about semi-automatic firearms yeah. the, the high caliber pistols mm. large I ammuni- mean ammunition magazines yeah. I think the second step comes around 2000 when we see increasingly mass shootings perpetrated by uh, what we now call assault rifles you yeah know, they do yeah. what they're what it says on yeah. the tin yeah. they are yeah. incredibly lethal and the biggest mass shootings 
of late have all been perpetrated with assault, uh, assault weapons. I mean, you've mentioned uh, you mentioned Scandinavia. I mean, obviously, we know there was a, an event in Norway not too long ago um, in Switzerland. But these are very homogeneous societies. Do you think that's uh, that has it's it's easier in societies like that to sort of regulate this and. You know, in the U.S., it's. I mean, maybe it's a. Maybe that's the flip side of sort of the race issue. I. I don't know. I. I think it comes down to a, 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 an issue about political culture. I think homogeneity of the population is an important issue, and that's why in some of these societies, which are beginning to get a bit mm. of the Islamophobia that we're mm. seeing across Europe, some of that might be breaking down. Um, but I think homogeneity is an important issue. Yes, clearly in the states we yeah. have significant uh, ethnic religious north south divides yeah. Yeah. which are often fault lines for a lot of the gun politics uh, why mass shootings I, I i think it's it's become a kind of almost uh, a, a copycat fen- phenomenon i don't want to i don't want to sort of talk about this as lightly but people have begun to see this as a way uh, of enacting a kind of revenge, resistance, mm. certainly in the, 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 the attacks by white supremacists, mm-hmm. it's become a way of uh, f- fighting their cause. Mm. And, and and many of them cite uh, Brevik and the Norway uh, right, shooting right. and likewise the, the uh, shooting in, in New Zealand. Yeah. So they reference one another. Mm. They, they, they produce podcasts. They have diaries. They yeah, have money. Yeah. So it's become a way of affecting a kind of grief or a resistance or a revenge or and 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 in a sense a way of doing it i i i think i coined the, the phrase dark celebrity yeah. to capture you know in an x-factor yeah. world people people could become a a dark celebrity very quickly by mm. by a, a, a horrific act against society but i thought i mean in, again uh, do correct me if i've got the wrong impression but i think something you wrote was about how uh, these perpetrators, uh, something about you know, they're, they're you know it's it sounds cliche, but they're loners, and something about how uh, the difference between American society and maybe other societies, where if you start seeing someone who's having these sort of mental breakdowns or whatever is mm-hmm. there, there's a more of a support system is that could you say something more I think that's I think the 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 issue of community mental health support is certainly a factor the 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 perpetrators of mass shootings do appear to have fundamental grudges I mean I I, there have been cases where uh, students shoot their examiners where where people who've been fired shoot their bosses Mm. or go back to the school that failed them or Kill the girlfriend that jilted them. So, it, it it's it's been a, it's become a way of enacting a really kind of lethal revenge, mm. often quite inarticulate revenge. Yes, yeah. Um, but but sometimes and and some of the some of the sort of femicide that goes in, goes into these shootings. That yeah. it's it's often men. Uh, exacting a, a revenge against the the women that have yeah. jilted them or belittled them, yeah. um, often often backed by friends. I mean, there's yeah. a fascinating case uh, of a school shooting, um, uh, and and the the, the preceding the shooting, the guy is 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 there with his gun, and and his friends are egging him on, go on, shoot the bitch. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's horrific. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Indeed. But but 
But it goes to a kind of culture where this is a way of enacting something. There was a discussing the um, Virginia Tech shooting yeah. yes. uh, from yeah. 2007. Someone talked about violence being as American as apple pie. It's a yeah. really worrying notion, but yeah. it, 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 it is a resource to which people can go yeah. to enact a kind of enraged powerlessness. Mm. It's, uh, and give them a gun. It's yeah. powerful. Hold that thought, Peter. Uh, but we need to take a little break here. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases and upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. And now, back to Factual America. So welcome back to uh, Factual America. We were just talking a lot about uh, that uh, lovely topic of uh, mass shootings in the United States. I think what would be worth um, uh, discussing, I mean, I think it'd be good if we could just maybe even pull back a little bit because obviously mass shootings get all the publicity. It's when various U.S. presidents over the years have come up and said, you know, this is in, this will end now. We can't let our children and sons and daughters be killed by these people, you know, like this again, and then nothing happens. Um, and, and even if there weren't mass shootings, there is a gun violence issue in the United States. So uh, what is it about uh, uh, the U.S. that makes us uh, so uniquely uh, incapable of, of tackling this issue? Uh, I think that that's a big, broad question, really. Uh, and then even uh, there's, I think, other issues here. Mental health, probably. We do know uh, in the official statistics, a lot of these mass shootings are um, murder-suicides. So, uh, Peter, what, why why can't we uh, finally get to grips with this issue in the United I, States? I think we've alluded to some of the reasons already to do with tradition, people yeah. standing on their their Second Amendment rights, their their fear of crime, of, mm. of, I mean, home invasion. I don't know how often homes are invaded, but yeah. people keep guns at home for that reason, and they're keeping increasingly powerful guns for that reason, uh, carrying them in their cars to prevent carjacking. Mm. And, and, and I think what, what I said earlier, that um, gun, gun possession for self-defense is, is about cr- fear of crime. It's also about fear of... Terrorism, I think, now has has become an issue. It was so soon after nine uh, eleven that people were talking about having uh, armed guards mm. on planes, and mm. and of course we're talking about armed guards. So guns are the answer. But the problem with guns is that people don't see them as a, as a risk. Uh, the 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 idea is that I have a gun to make myself safe. But all the evidence shows yeah. I'm more likely to use my gun on myself than anybody else. And I'm more something like seven times more likely to shoot a fellow family member yeah, yeah. than than an aggressor, an outsider. Yeah. So so that's part of the, the the misunderstanding. Guns are used in suicide twice as often as they are in homicide. And that's mm. You know, the gun is not your friend. The gun yeah. is a risk to your household. Yeah, I mean, I think for to to uh, probably a picture that some of our listeners are drawing, who are maybe based in, or never certainly been to the U.S. is uh, we're not talking about a place that's uh, everyone's walking around with a holster on their hip. I mean, um, executive producer of Alamo Pictures and I were talking the other day. Uh, he lived in uh, Texas for or the United States certainly for around ten years. I'm from there. Um, 
I don't know if I've, except for a policeman, I don't know if I've ever seen someone carrying a gun um, around and uh, certainly didn't have them in my house. Uh, we we're more fishermen, but uh, I think uh, uh, we had the gun rack and the pickup, but that was for the fishing poles and not the guns. But it is, it's an odd one because it's not like it, it's, it's not like people are, you know, rampantly carrying guns. It's not as, you know, like even some societies where you've had breakdown, like in Central America and, and, and other places. But at the same time, it is for a country of, 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 of like the U.S., it's, it is so, it's, it is a, a relatively prevalent problem. And then what is, you know, is it the gun lobby? Is it, uh, is that, is that the main thing that's standing in the, in the way of, of well, getting I, this? Well, I, I mentioned my trip to Tombstone and what, yeah. what, what, what struck me there is that there were lots of people dressed as cowboys with yeah. six shooters on their hip. But the one who surprised me was a guy in, 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 you know, denims and a, and a plaid shirt and, and he'd got a Glock. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so he was a he was a tourist, but he clearly yeah. Arizona. It's one of the Western states. Where, yeah. But but the bigger picture, yeah. I mean, people don't often realize, but gun ownership as a demographic is falling. It's yeah. about thirty percent of households that have a gun. Yeah. It's almost entirely the man that owns the gun. Uh, something like eighty-five percent of the gun, guns owned in America are owned by men. Mm. But this demographic is falling. What's also interesting is that the the people who own guns. Um, are buying more of them. That's and I, the thing, and I find that a fascinating thing. Yeah. How, how do you persuade the guy who's already got six guns to buy the next one? Yeah. And I think that's been the marketing strategy of the, the gun industry for the last 20 or 30 years. The, I talked earlier about the uplift from revolvers to mm. semi-automatic pistols, and I did a study on the marketing of those. But I think the, the sales pitch now is all about the semi-automatic uh, assault rifles, which are the yeah. next big thing that the gun industry is trying to sell you. It's almost the equivalent of, uh, for a lot of men in, in, in technology and cars and things, you you want the next thing that can do something bigger and faster and, and better in, in I, some I, ways. I, yes. Yeah, I, I think... I I, yeah. I I try to explain it to uh, to to English audiences by reference to, do you play golf? How many golf clubs do you yeah, have? Yeah. And you know, no yeah. one only has one, uh, and they have different functions. And yeah. and that's part of a sporting culture, yes. But it's also a sporting culture which is now oriented itself around the self defence market, mm. and that's. That's where the guns are being sold yeah. today. I mean, you've you've also looked at. Uh, I think what was an interesting uh, was to contrast um, Dunblane, which was the uh, uh, back to mass shooting, but in Scotland. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, the tennis star Andy Murray was even a, a student at the school when this happened, and how the UK addressed that mm. versus how Sandy Hook happens and. Lots of politicians say in the U.S. say they're going to do all kinds of things, you know, about the school shooting in uh, in Connecticut, but then nothing really happens. Could you say uh, Dunblane, Dunblane was was the game changer in in Britain? Um, although it was the second mass shooting we yeah. had, and in a way that gave more political traction to the idea that we can say never again. This is not a knee jerk ha- yeah. reaction. Yeah. It's happened before, and this time it was five year old children. Um, but but the political system initially mm. tried to respond to Don Blaine by setting up a judicial inquiry that would look at the evidence and British, yeah. take yeah. take both sides, you know, the gun lobby and the gun yeah. control movement. And, and, and until Don Blaine 
happened there wasn't one right um and and weigh up the evidence but i think um this was this was a, a turning point because it was children the horror and outrage the generation of a of a, a political campaign the snowdrop campaign about mm. Gun, about uh, handgun ownership, and I think it it, it also was a unique opportunity because Tony Blair, mm -hmm. who who at the time was leader of the opposition, was seizing the moment to be seen as make Labour the party of law and order, and and interesting took the issue and it it fitted in because it was we were just coming up to a, a general election, so Labour seized the issue. But uh, 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 there was such a, a groundswell of, of, of sort of horror at the idea that a grown man could just shoot children like shooting fish in a barrel. That, yeah, yeah. Um, even the outgoing Tory government mm. uh, legislated a ban on uh, higher calibre firearms. And when Blair came in, he, he completed that and, and two two. Uh, mm. pistols were banned as well so it was a conjunction of circumstances yeah but but accompanied by an idea that you know a, a political fix ain't gonna do it this time right and and public opinion was well in support of the uh the the handgun ban and you know when, when it comes to a, a question is People's right to play Dirty Harry yeah. versus children's safety in school—it's—it's it's a no-brainer, and I yeah. think that was the way it was presented. I mean, I wonder if things are—if the—I mean, we've been here many times before, as we've said, uh, but if the tide might start to be turning in the U.S. I mean, I know in social media a few days ago there was a lot of uh, uproar. The uh, Target, the big retailer in the U.S., announcing that. Uh, Besides its managers, all employees at all of its stores were going to get training on how to deal with a uh, with a, a, a mass shooting or you know a, a violent incident in, in their sh stores, and that's caused some some you know uproar, uh, uproar about is this some you know no one should have to go through that kind of training you know, um, and I guess gets me a point if uh, we could change some U.S. law or give you a U.S. passport, make you a naturalized American citizen or something, you're president. I mean, what are the what are the solutions, do you think, to to this? Well, I, I had a lot of uh, hope and expectation uh, that the kind of package of uh, gun control measures that the Obama mm. administration were trying to to push through the Senate would 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 get some political support. When when there's a mass shooting, mm -hmm. um, you you see a kind of groundswell of, yeah. of of public opinion for something to be done. But that seems to have a a, a fairly short shelf life. It it, yeah. it sort of goes away. Um, but a number of those proposals filling the gaps in the yeah. national instant check system and making sure that people with mental health uh, hospitalizations yeah. cannot access firearms yeah. because there have been a number of major mass shooting incidents perpetrated by people who really ought not to have been allowed a gun. Right. Um, right. Irrespective of their felony record, they were mentally unstable. They yeah. bought the gun. Uh, when the, I mean, this goes right back to the Brady law and the attempt on yeah. Ronald Reagan's life. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think filling those gaps... Uh, uh, Establishing a, a, a better licensing system 
For, for, I mean, I know some states go further than others. So yes, we've got a patchwork quilt. So you, you it's hard it's, to it generalize. Is state by state, yeah. But but there are real issues in in some of those states that allow uh, secondary sales to go relatively un, unsupervised. Yeah. Uh, and again, that was part of the. Um, Obama package to have uh, federally licensed dealers oversee secondary market sales. Um, mm. So, so I think there are lots of lots of little developments, and I think to to empower the ATF to do proper searching because uh, according to um, the, the law, the ATF cannot store gun records on a computer mm. system. So it's it's right. hamstrung by the idea that everything has got to be a paper check, which slows weapon tracing down enormously. Mm. Um, and it and it's the fear because I, I know a number of people on the gun lobby side think that if you if you register guns if you license them yeah. the state will know where they are and it's one step more towards confiscation right. so they have a a fear of that but it it seems to me to disempower your government law and order agencies yeah. in the way that currently they are is 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 crazy yeah and i think but maybe the you know sort of the hope is as you were describing earlier is the the sort of the demographic trends that we're seeing in the u.s and this fall in gun ownership at least in terms of the numbers of households we do know that those households who own them are owning more uh but you know you, you maybe it's 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 a i hate to say it, but it's it's almost a waiting game and you get to a point where you've had enough of a demographic shift that you you finally have the enough politicians who will be able to put the steps in place that will at least help address some of these some of these issues yes i, I think it's a it's a it's this, it's an issue that's moving at glacial speed yes yes but it indeed. but it's a it's a demographic one um what what's interested me of late has been the the gun industry's attempt to find new markets for guns yeah. particularly a market amongst women i mean that's a, yeah. that's an untapped market so so you can buy a pink Assault rifle, or or a, it's so uh, condescending, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but um, anyway, but maybe it but, works. Uh, but that put, or a, or a, you know, yeah. smaller guns that can fit in a purse True. and the accoutrements True. for concealing them around the body. So looking for new markets is one thing. But I I, I do think, and it's certainly since the Parkland shooting in yeah. Florida a couple of years back, yeah. I think the. The, the the emergence of a of, of a more articulate youth campaign mm. that that points to a demographic that feels let down I, I guess we've been here before feels yes. let down by politicians and and the sort of inertia especially in the Senate it seems to me yeah I mean even Trump looked like he was wavering for a while on on some gun issues the bomb yeah. stocks but I, I think he got stomped on pretty quickly by yeah. his NRA advisors. Yes. But yeah. but there seemed to be a chink there. A number of companies yeah. were disinvesting from mm. gun-related products. So I, I think there's a slow burn issue here. The NRA membership is white, getting older, suburban, yeah. and it's shrinking. One of the consequences of that ideologically is that they become much more partisan much more extreme yes, yeah but i think that's also a sign of its decline mm, yeah uh, i think what we're going to do now is uh, on that note is uh, actually since this is a podcast that references documentary films i think we're going to see another uh, another scene from the from the film what do you think peter's this one where uh, michael dunn who's the shooter the uh, who's well i won't give away the ending though anyone probably already knows the ending um 
he talks about, uh, you know, I think they ask him uh, as part of the trial why, you know, he, he doesn't just shoot once. He shoots, as we say, the, as the title of the film tells you, 10 times, even as the car is driving away, he shoots into the back mm. of the car. And I think there's, uh, he talks about why he was so, why he kept shooting and what he was afraid of. So let's see that. What did you believe was about to happen to you? I, I thought I was going to be killed, but I still didn't go for my gun at that time. I was just like going, oh my God, okay. where is all this hostility coming from? And it was at that point where he said, this shit's going down now. In your wildest dreams, could you fathom being in that position over a common courtesy? No. Okay. Now, at this point, what's going through your mind when he said, this shit's going down now? This was a clear and present danger, and I said, um, you're not going to kill me, you son of a bitch. Okay, and as you said that, were you looking at him, or were you now moving that, to get that part? I, I said that as I was retrieving my pistol. Could you show the jury exactly what you did? Well, if, um, if we say over here is my glove box, um, I'm looking out the window, and I said, you're not going to kill me, you son of a bitch, and I shot. Okay. And do you even recall how many times you shot? I do not. Kind of was um, in a fixed position with the tunnel vision. I didn't realize the SUV was moving. I was still aiming at the rear passenger, and it didn't register that the car was backing up. Okay. And at some point, you realize now there's no more red door in front of your face? This is where Rhonda starts coming into my mind, because... I know she's heard the shots. I know Rhonda. Um, it, it wasn't just my life I was worried about, no. And at some point now, do you see that SUV actually drive towards a different direction or try to drive away? It, it did, and this is where the... Um, now they're back in line with if they fire on me, they'll hit the front door and this is where Rhonda comes out. What was your purpose of firing towards the back of that vehicle? Were you I, I, I was uh, worried about a blind firing situation where they would, you know, shoot over their heads or whatever and uh, hit me or hit me and Rhonda. I stopped firing when um, it appeared that the um, threat was over. Okay, welcome back to uh, Factual America. Uh, at the break, uh, Peter I, and I were talking, and he sort of gave something away here. Uh, he's a sixty-four thousand dollar question is a, it's a phrase we that gets used a lot in this in this country. Of uh, if he lived himself lived in the U.S., would he be a gun owner? We're going to say something about that. I, I that's a real dilemma. I've I've never owned a gun in 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 the UK. I've I've taken part in shooting competitions mm. when I was much younger in 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 the uh, uh, cadet force. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was quite a boring thing to do. Um, yeah. I'm 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 not very keen on hunting, shooting things for yeah. fun, and I find I find the whole grouse shooting elite culture thing mm -hmm. quite sickening. But I suppose it would be a question about where did I live in the States and how confident was I about the ability of the police to to get there on time? Because I know that there are there are these slogans, you know yeah. 
when when seconds matter, the police are only minutes away, yeah. and all of that, <laughs> and it 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 does raise a, a predicament. So so I wonder. I mean, maybe not in one of the big cities, but mm. maybe if I lived out in the wilds, some some protection would would be sensible i I know i'm havering here i i'm not sure i I, a friend of mine came over recently who Mm. who lived in florida was an ex-cop in in florida and and after five days i plucked up the courage to ask him yeah did did he have a i mean ex-cop i assumed but yeah and he said he said yes he had this one and he had another one (laughs) and he would never leave his wife alone at home without her having access to a firearm yeah wow well but maybe that's florida yeah i just think of uh the late uncle of mine may rest in peace uh uh, visiting it was at college and i was on my way home and i usually stop at their house for uh because it was halfway point getting home and uh he was giving me a tour of the house one day he said Big, uh, you know, big camper, had all this equipment. He had this wall full of, like, all these different ropes he used for rappelling and rock climbing and things. And then he just said, <laughs> he just pulled one back and he had a semi-automatic there. And he goes, just in case the shit goes down, I'm ready. <laughs> so you just, uh, I mean, it is a, there is, I guess what you're touching at is that, uh, you know, there is in some parts, um Sort of a, you could, it it's, can be somewhat understandable that some people would have a fear of, of, uh, of, of their safety. I mean, uh, my own, when my wife and I talk about, we, we've, we've I'd probably in a similar boat. Uh, we always said, well, if we lived out in the country someplace, yeah, we probably would have one just to shoot the odd rattlesnake or two if we ever needed it for something, you know, not that you need a gun to shoot a rattlesnake, to kill a rattlesnake. That, yes, but, that but, you know. too. <laughs> um, but I, I, and I, but I said earlier, I, yeah. I, I was fascinated with uh, many aspects of American culture, yeah. uh, you know, music and, yeah. and media. And, and what surprised me, I, I'd never quite... Uh, caught onto the fact but but as soon as i started researching mm. uh the whole gun issue i was surprised how much yeah. i'd soaked up about yeah. different types yeah. of rifles and different types of pistols yeah. i you know and this is all from uh from media film yeah. media now that that is at the same time a problem when you're a uh, an academic researcher mm. because that is the same as saying you've picked up a lot of um you've picked up a lot of information about guns and maybe some other perceptions about guns from yeah you know a mythical hollywood product yeah which is why i like to try and keep it in the real and yeah. and talk about the kind of uh, dangers the risks associated with firearm ownership i mean i i, I mentioned earlier i'm havering here about the mm. the fact of would I want to own a gun if I lived in certain parts of the states? But at the same time, I know on a on a on a logical level that that gun is a risk. Yeah, it's it's statistically more like mm. uh, likely to be a risk to me than a yeah. an asset to yeah. me. But yeah. knowing that, you we we have a as humans a tremendous ability to. Mm not take in those bits of information that we don't <laughs> Indeed. we don't like. <laughs> well maybe on that note I think it would be uh maybe this is uh unfortunately we're going to have to maybe uh give it a wrap here. Uh but uh Peter it's been a pleasure having you on the uh Factual America podcast. Really uh really do appreciate that. Um and your insights into what a topic that can be um 
Well, it's a serious topic and uh, one that uh, people do need to, uh, people with much more influence than you and I have need to get to grips with. Um, I'd like to give uh, a shout out here to uh, Spiritland Studios uh, who um, for their great hospitality. Um, also, if you want to keep track of uh, Peter's uh, academic work and his research, he's got a website, uh, petersquires.net. He's going to now he's going to be upset with me because now he's got to go home and update it. <laughs> and uh, ch please check out the eponymous uh, website also of Mark Silver, the director of the uh, film Three and a Half uh, Minutes, Ten Bullets, uh, which won a uh, jury prize at Sundance in 2015. And uh, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And without further ado, um, this is Factual America signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guest, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.